Hey guys, this is Pete. Before we start the show, I just wanted to give a quick shameless plug for my debut novel entitled Frankenstein A Life Beyond. It's the first direct sequel to Mary Shelley's classic and follows Ernest Frankenstein, the sole survivor of the original book. Like mystery, adventure, romance, horror, then this is the ebook for you. Check it out today on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and my website, EnceladusLiterary.com. That's E N C E L A D U S Literary.com. Thanks. Now on with the show. Welcome to Hindsight is 2020, a show where we look at anything in this world and arrogantly say how we'd fix it. And I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. These two idiots. <laughs> we give our thoughts on movies and TV shows that should or should not have been. And now you dispatch your peacekeepers to write our destiny again. We can never accept this peace. That leaves us with nothing but pain. Pain the peacemakers must be made to feel. With your host, Pete. Not take action without authorization. Now, what do you think I am, some gung-ho stupid son of a bitch? No, I don't think you're stupid. I think you're a talented soldier with sloppy impulse control, and I don't want you provoking an international incident because of a personal agenda. And Greg. Right, you're the guy who gets things done. Smart. Put a German on it. And we slowly and mercilessly beat our subject to death. And we are back in 1997. We what? Can't seem, we can't seem to get away from it. But uh, we're going to go back to the good... Men in black. Oh, I wish. <laughs> I, I wish we would go back and say, you can stop with men in black. You're fine. <laughs> just, just, really, just do one. <laughs> it's unnecessary to go any further, but that's fine. Uh, yeah, we're, we're in the, the, the fanciful year of 1997 of, of such blockbuster hits as Event Horizon. And Nothing to Lose with Tim Robbins and Martin Lawrence. Mm. Remember all these grand hits? And the classic... Tell me about more! <laughs> well, the classic that was Batman and Robin. Uh-huh. Uh, nothing clunky there. No, but we will tie in somewhat with that because we are going to talk about The Peacemaker. Yes, a film lost to history <laughs> <laughs> for very good reasons. It's lost but to history. Not lost to Netflix. <laughs> no, it's not lost to Netflix, and uh, it probably gets a lot of watches now because it's like, ooh, hey, George Clooney and Nicole Kidman, that's got to be good. Well, it's an action thriller. That'll put you to sleep. <laughs> By having no action and no thrills. <laughs> uh, the uh, well, here, you tell me briefly. You got you. You got thirty seconds. You tell me briefly. Uh, why are we doing the Peacemaker? Well, I believe this was one of our shared college viewing experiences. Yes. Oh sure. Oh yeah. And uh, I, I think you were a little more jazzed th for this one than I was. This was the first uh, DreamWorks movie, right? Yeah, just by sheer happenstance, not by any sort of planning. Like, our grand opening of our studio is going to be The Peacemaker. No, it, was, it wasn't anything like that. It was just something that happened on the slate of movies. Because I think the other ones were uh, Amistad the Spielberg movie, and I uh, should have done more research, but I'm uh, Was it one of those animated movies? No, because that was the next year. That was oh, okay. Ant, Ants. Um, I don't know. There was some other movie that came out, so there were three movies at DreamWorks as a studio, because kids, prior to 1997, DreamWorks didn't exist as a studio. It was founded by Spielberg, Geffen, and... Uh, Katzenberg, so it was originally DreamWorks SKG, but I think they dropped the SKG like two minutes after they started releasing movies and said, well, that's a little bit of a mouthful. 
So DreamWorks still exists, but uh, this was its introduction to becoming an actual movie studio. So they started out with a bang and... Literally. Well, they... uh, This movie starts with a bang. Well, yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it was just a sheer happenstance that it came out in the summer of 97, late summer 97, and it was... It, I guess it had the misfortune of uh, one thing, outside of other things we'll get into the details, but uh, I think their big plan was, look, Clooney is coming off of ER, and he did From Dust Till Dawn in 95. He did One Fine Day with Michelle Pfeiffer in 96. And they're thinking, all right, he's going to burst out at any point, and then Warner Brothers hired him to play Batman, and so I think DreamWorks said, well, let's get this guy. He'll be coming, you know, right off of the heels of what can be a can't-miss Batman and Robin. So we can't lose with this guy being our starring vehicle. And little did they know that when the movie came out in late summer, early fall of 1997, uh, he was still a star of ER and the guy who tanked the Batman franchise suddenly. So, oh, wait, was it Deep Impact? Was that the other movie? Possibly. I don't think so. I think Deep uh, Impact okay. might have been a universal movie. Oh, all right. But that does have a tie here, too, because the director, Mimi Leader, did do uh, Deep Impact as well. Um, she came from ER, nonetheless. She was, a director. Hey. she was a television director and did a lot of episodes of ER, but... I digress. So we're here to talk about the peacemaker, if for yeah. no other, if for no other reason than to say, cleanse our palate once and for all. <laughs> <laughs> it's just been burning at us, man. It's just oh. Uh, uh, actually, I think I, actually I think I'm to blame for this episode. So sorry. <laughs> I actually went back and rewatched this on Netflix a couple of weeks ago, and I had a very similar reaction. I think I was making a lot less snarky comments this time <laughs> when I was watching it because I was prepared. But yeah, um, the going back to your original question to me, um, yeah, I think you were a little bit more game for this than I was. I think you kind of talked me into going to this, and this is one of those movies that, and again, we'll get into the specifics why I just did not connect with. And by the time we got towards the end of it, it was starting to go into Jurassic Park 2 territory for me a little bit as far as me running my mouth at the screen. So, Oh, another one of those 1997 classics. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just such a great year for film right there. Good <laughs> Lord. It wasn't until December that we got Titanic and Goodwill Hunting and As Good As It Gets, so it was a... It was a rough year, kids. Salvaged at the end of it, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, what is the, uh, what is the story of the Peacemaker? Oh, well, okay, well, here's, here's where we would have some difficulty, because you basically have two human cardboard cutouts walking around <laughs> that look like George Clooney and Nicole Kidman. Of course. Um, and a terrorist group sets off Russian nuclear weapons that are being transported on a train. Uh, George Clooney is brought in to work with Nicole Kidman to try to figure out who did this and if they, I guess they already know they're missing weapons. I don't even remember. And uh, so they start this chase, I guess, to try to stop these nuclear weapons from being used by the terrorists somewhere else and uh, you have kind of a series of misadventures as they're trying to track these things down, little action set pieces here and there. Uh, you've got this Serbian? No. Yeah, it was it was Bosnia and Serbia. Bosnia, yeah. Uh, terrorist guy who's kind of the mastermind of all of this stuff, and he ends up with the uh, core of the nuclear device in downtown Manhattan and... Um, they save the day and there's swimming involved. So <laughs> I, I think that's the plot. Yeah. The, it centers around there, a, uh, a, a train crash in Russia. And that's how they get a hold of one of these nuclear, nuclear weapons, nuclear, nuclear power, nuclear, <laughs> nuclear waste. 
<laughs> now, now here's the question: Without looking, can you name their characters? <laughs> um, I know Nicole Kidman's first name was Julia, uh, because I remember Clooney yelling that many times at the end, like some sort of forced characterization suddenly in the last 35 seconds of the movie to suddenly start yelling her name like they're deep lovers or something which it does not happen Uh, no um but then i cheated because i've already looked it up and so i had forgotten his name his name was lieutenant colonel thomas devoe yeah and i just watched this movie (laughs) and i i literally could not dredge up any names yeah it's just nicole kidman and george Clooney. (laughs) so I mean, there's a there's a nuclear weapon stolen, and the White House finds out, and so Nicole Kidman comes in as the White House nuclear expert, um, and then she somehow ends up with Special Operations Officer DeVoe Clooney, and then they travel to Europe and back to New York trying to find the terrorist who has a nuclear weapon, and... There's a there's a very distinct problem in this movie that I'll just jump right in. A ton of action movies have this same problem, and I'll put it as this way: a ton of action movies pre superhero or non superhero action have this problem of your star or stars getting separated from any sort of support team, any sort of support staff, a group, an army, ranger, team, whatever it is, they always get conveniently separated from them. And it happens in this movie at least three or four times where Clooney and Kidman are on their own being chased by random terrorists, and there doesn't seem to be any real reason for it. It just becomes very egregious how many times they just get separated at random and why she's in the middle of firefights and she's just carrying a briefcase. And uh, this movie has a lot of problems. (laughs) Well, let's try to parse them out here by category. Um, Let's start with the characters since we've (laughs) mentioned that I can't remember their names to save my life. Oh, I'm sorry. There were characters in this movie. (laughs) I'm sorry. The cardboard human cutouts that look like. Well, here's the thing. There's the the so-called the terrorist guy has a family that you keep seeing in flashbacks died or in, in like the Bosnian Serbian War. So they were trying. They to were be shot topical. by a sniper. I remember that much. Ha <laughs> Yeah. So they were trying to be topical with his family dying in the Serbian War, and then he kind of getting recruited to this terrorist group to carry this stuff out as a revenge. And because he didn't feel the United States and the United Nations had done enough to stop it. Was that the, yeah. I mean, he really has the strongest character in this movie and that's not Uh, agreed. (laughs) And he suddenly ends up on the streets of New York with his brother, I think, or I believe it's his brother. Yes. And And some other guy. Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, he acts as like a diplomat from Bosnia or Serbia so he can get to New York and not have his stuff checked because he's officially a member of the United Nations. And they don't check diplomatic immunity for these people. (laughs) That would have been awesome. (laughs) They'd just have that guy show up (laughs) from Lethal Weapon 2. (laughs) Don't look at his devices. He has diplomatic immunity. He has diplomatic immunity. And then Danny Glover comes in and says, this movie's just been revoked. (laughs) And shoots them all, and they drive off. And and that's the end of it. And everyone shrugs and goes, that was weird, random. (laughs) That was weird. Uh, <laughs> so he gets to New York with his nuclear device because he claims the immunity under the UN. So they don't search any of his uh, special bags and stuff. And then he ends up on the streets of man downtown Manhattan, like you said, with a backpack nuke, trying to set it off. And I mean, we're jumping way ahead. This is basically the end. No, not a bu- a bomb. Oh, a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it's just real problematic. That, that's my biggest problem is that there's no characters, there's no characterization leading up to the whole movie, but the end action scene chase through Manhattan just ends up going into a big, just gaseous fart of an ending. <laughs> <laughs> it's just nothing. Because, that, and again, that goes back to my problem of 
why would you have an entire crew that has FBI jackets running through the city of New York where everyone has walkie-talkies and the cops are cordoning off every street they can because they know there's a nuclear weapon missing and they've got a, a radiation tracker with helicopters and Clooney's leading the charge. And suddenly out of the blue, Nicole Kidman's driving a... SUV that she takes from an FBI guy, which would never have or a military guy and drives through the city of New York. And by magic, she ends up in the same alleyway with Clooney. And all those guys that were running behind him have disappeared. Never to be seen again. Who is she? Lois Lane and <laughs> Anne of Steel. <laughs> she can just magically appear where she's needed. But, but I mean, that's my biggest it's such a nitpick, but when you when it comes down to it, how many problems are in this movie, that is one of my biggest problems, is how all of a sudden these two end up completely alone, face-to-face with the terrorist and his brother. Clooney shoots the brother. The terrorist guy with the backpack somehow gets away and gets into a church. But the, it's just these two guys, these two people chasing after him. After the entire city's been cordoned off and every FBI guy in the world is right behind him. And then suddenly, oh, wait, we got to have these two save the day for some reason. And that, and then they just end up in a church trying to take apart a nuclear bomb and that's it. So yeah, the, the lack of characterization in this thing is critical because um, as you were talking, I actually started thinking, you know, a few years earlier, they had a somewhat similar setup where you had, uh, at least by the end of the movie, uh, you had people who were kind of thrown together, kind of the odd couple, so to speak, thrown together into a situation, had to run around New York, had to... Uh, do different tasks and everything like that and ultimately they thought that they were stopping this big nuclear bomb and everything and die hard with a vengeance oh, a, yeah. much, a much more fun and engaging movie to watch um, there are I think echoes of some of what that film did as far as the setup went but I can't think of a single scene between these characters that isn't something where it it was like there were certain scenes where it was in your face about, oh, I don't know if we can take orders from a lady. And it's like, this is 1997. <laughs> well, yeah. I think the really heart, pro- heart of the problem with this movie is not its fault, is mm. that it came out four years too early, unfortunately. If this movie came out in 2002... It, and it was the exact same movie, but if it came out in 2002, oh, wow, how prescient is that? That's unbelievable. It would have resonated differently in the public, but as far as the basic script problem of there being no characters and no chemistry between these people, <laughs> I mean, that still would have been a big problem. All right, well, how do you fix this? How do you fix this thing? Because they tried. And honestly, knowing Clooney's career... Uh-huh. It's, it seems like there were a couple instances in this movie where you could spot him literally going to Mimi Leader, the director, and saying, how about I add a line or two here about, like, knowing this guy in Europe for years or just little things, just little things that are thrown in. Can I try to make this guy sound human? Yeah. Can, can we make him a human being, or is that just that he, off limits? That he has some kind of a background, or he has feelings, or something. <laughs> or a pulse. Or a pulse. <laughs> <laughs> Does he breathe in and out, or just in? We don't know. So, yeah. So we yeah. got to give him some sort of character. But there's there's a couple of times, like, when he meets with the European contact, where... It, this really seems to be like, okay, we got to throw in that he's known this guy for a long time and he brings contraband for the guy's daughter, something to give Clooney's character a character. But the one who really suffers is Nicole Kidman. She yeah, has, there's, there's nothing, nothing there. Nothing. Even she doesn't even pull in those little Clooney moments of, well, let me throw in this one little thing here that's no, her only little thing so to, so to speak, is that she swims. She swims like a mad woman. I, I think she's about as deep a character as Chase Meridian was. 
Uh, Chase Meridian at least had more going for, her, and that's a real problem. Uh, no, there's just there's nothing to her. It's like okay, so she's got this job and she swims, and she resents George Clooney's character's presence through a good portion of the movie, and then suddenly, bam, the friends. I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it was almost like they were trying not to make a romantic connection between the two, thinking, well, we can't have a romantic connection between these two because that's just too cliche. But then all of a sudden at the end, well, we got to have some sort of connection between them. Hurry up and throw something in there. Yeah, the, she's swimming and he's standing there and the end. What? No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, if you'd, if you'd had a family or a friend or somebody like that who was directly put in danger because of these things and that, you know, raised the stakes, that would have been fine. You still wouldn't have had to go a romantic route with it. Or something. <laughs> or, or I hate to say this because uh, it was just on the other night and I actually watched it. Mm. But the movie that this could compare to and the one that actually did it better is, forgive me for saying this because I know it's 20 years later and now I can be laughed at, Speed. This movie could be compared to Speed with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. And you could make a very good argument. That movie did it so much better. And it was just little things here and there. Maybe it's just the chemistry between the actors. I don't know. But... Speed took one premise and put it on a very good, like, high wire act that you didn't get off of until the very end. And the characters went through it, and what, whatever they emoted in that cheese tacular movie <laughs> was enough to say, Oh, I could kind of see how Keanu and Sandra could end up together at the end of this movie during this crazy event. Whereas in The Peacemaker, Clooney and Kidman just like. Well, it's it's what Trey Parker calls the and then script. <laughs> and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. Not therefore this happens because of this, this happens. No, it's, well, these are just a couple of things that are strung together. And then this happens and the end. It's dry and dead. In It's a dead soul. <laughs> well, I, when you were talking about the speed comparison and everything, too, I mean, again, cheesiness aside, you had you spent an, a lot of time, too, interacting with some of the side characters and everything like that and giving them little moments here and there. And, yeah, you had events that raised the stakes, but it raised the stakes in kind of a natural, organic way for the characters and uh things changed uh, for them like their characters developed over the course of the script that's just not here well it's it's at least not in any kind of like fully functional way well the movie is listed under the genre of action and thriller mm -hmm. and the worst thing you could ever say about a movie that's listed under action and thriller is that it's really fucking boring <laughs> it, there's there's really dumb action and no thrills at all i mean the only thing i can remember being a vague thrill is when i showed my family this movie uh and, and, and it was because of a job i was working with movie marketing at the time but when I sh when I sat down and it was like every Sunday during a period of time in the late 90s, our families would get together and just end up watching a movie. And I was usually the one to bring the movie. So I had everybody watch The Peacemaker. And my family is a decent barometer because they're not massive moviegoers. So if something really works, it's going to get their attention. If it doesn't work, eh, they'll be bored too. And the only thing I remember from watching this movie with my family is my now sister-in-law gasping when a guy tried to... Uh, there was a sniper on a building in Manhattan towards the end who had a, a visual on the, the guy with the bomb. Mm -hmm. But he had there was like a, a mother and kid in the way. And he was like sweating and he shot and accidentally shot and killed a woman. And that was the only reaction in the entire movie. And 
of a movie where there's chasing and gunfights and car chasing and running atop cars down midtown Manhattan. And helicopters and, and trucks <laughs> crashing off bridges. And all and, these things. <laughs> and nuclear bombs and a train crashing. The only exciting moment at all was this sniper who couldn't shoot because a kid was in the way and accidentally shot a woman. That was it. And your thrilling action movie, there's your biggest beat. And the rest of it is just boring. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, because I think you'd be hard-pressed if you really asked a lot of people. It's like, okay, well, in thriller movies or action movies or whatever, do you usually get a whole lot of characterization? Do you usually care? I mean, what is it specifically? Is there a way that we can... What makes this different and just so blah? I mean, there's plenty of action movies where the characters are paper thin. True, and usually those don't really hold up either. But, you know, use that speed comparison. Sure, you don't remember everybody's names, but, hell, it made Sandra Bullock's career. Oh, yeah. And it made people see Keanu differently than Ted Theodore Logan. I mean, oh, I'm coming back. And people remembered the premise enough, and that's all you need. If you have a good premise, and that's what you're really selling your movie on, you don't need to have the deepest characters in the world, but you need to have likable characters who have some sort of humanity. And I think that's why the the Peacemaker just falls apart, is because, like you said... We don't even know these people's names. <laughs> who gives a <laughs> shit? And... and we have no idea of the motivation. I, I have no idea of the motivation of why Nicole Kidman is along step-by-step step with Clooney's character in every sequence of this movie. Yeah, for all the... If something like this actually did happen and all the federal personnel and all the agencies that would be involved, yeah. Because she's not... An, she has no military background, according to the script or according to the movie. She is just simply a nuclear weapons advisor. That's great. Put her on the phone. They had cell phones <laughs> in 1997. Have this military specialist and his crew and Navy SEALs crisscrossing the globe, and she can be in his earpiece saying, here's what you do when you find the bomb. Not, let's go do you know, European diplomacy with this nuclear expert who is nowhere near a nuclear bomb until the end of the movie. So why is she there at all? Well, and, and they never set up like, okay, obviously there's a danger and there's a terrorist group and everything like that, but I don't feel, and you can check me on this, I don't feel like they ever really set up the ending. It wasn't like that nuclear bomb went off at the beginning and it's, oh God, we have real reason to suspect that someone is going to try to smuggle a bomb in the United States. Here's why. It was, uh, we turn into Team America and suddenly we're <laughs> over in this place blowing stuff up and... <laughs> Uh, oh, what's going on? I don't know. Let's kill these fuckers and keep moving. I mean, it's it's just yeah. It, it yeah. There's no there's no flow. There's no setup for anything that happens. It, like you were saying, it's just an, and then we and then we go on to this for some reason. Here's a random nuclear bomb that was missing. Okay, I've actually seen like MSNBC reports where they talk about hundreds of nuclear weapons in the last 60 or 70 years that have gone missing and there are different crews out there trying to find them so what makes this one in particular so special that would lead them to the ending you're right what the hell leads that to this ending there isn't anything set up <laughs> to lead you to that ending and then there, just all of a sudden it's like well i guess we're in new york i mean there's no I, there was a video in it but there's no like we're going to come to New York, and we're going to blow up your buildings, and this is how we're going to do it. I dare you to stop me. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, I mean, if that had been, like, scene three after the bombs go off in Russia would have been them receiving that tape, then it's like, okay, I know why the stakes are what they are. I know what the goal is and these people coming together. And you could easily write in a couple lines of dialogue to justify the two of them staying together on this. And yeah, even if you'd had after one of the action set pieces that they did have, even if you had somebody higher up 
you know, demanding that they stay together because they had accomplished something or gotten some vital clue. Even that little bit of setup would have made it better. Or, or a fictional Bin Laden, something that would raise more than a common red flag in the White House or in government. If oh, we we the trains exploded and there's a nuclear weapon missing. Okay, well where to go? Let's go and try and find it. It should have been more like the trains exploded. There's a nuclear weapon missing, and by God, we know exactly who did it. And we've got to find them because we have a past with them, and we know what they're going to do, and we know what they're capable of. And then set that in motion that Dr. Evil has a hold of the <laughs> uh, the nuclear weapon, so at least you have a reason to say, okay, we have a place to start now to go find them, not just what this movie does. Uh, let's just cast a big old net in the ocean and see what we catch. Because, well, we got to go do something. Why? Because the script says we have to fly the somewhere. Script tells us to, and now we're here. Yeah. The, the script says we have to have a European car chase. So how do we get there? <laughs> and honestly, it's kind of hard in some ways to go back and talk about how you could change this in a post-9-11 world because... We would view these threats and these ideas, or we do, I should say, uh, I think a lot differently than the way that they're handled or presented in the film. Well, it would be post nine eleven is just going to change everything. Sure, I, this movie probably just would be nothing but Arab terrorists with turbans and in. I mean, you kind of get Arab terrorists, but they're Bosnian Serbians because of 1997. We were only really involved in Bosnia Serbian war, you know, difficulties. That was really the only thing going on. Because, yes, kids who listen to this podcast pre 2001, things were kind of peaceful and calm and cool in this country. So to mm -hmm. find to find the really big bad guy post Cold War pre 9 11 was, well. We sent some UN guys to some random place called Bosnia, so let's make those the bad guys for some reason. And that's kind of what led to this. So it really comes back to the timing of this movie is just purely unfortunate because even if they would have been able to create a character out of this, it wouldn't have held a lot of water. It would have been very, very fictional still in 1997. would have been like, oh, well, that was fun and fictional. We're going after a nuclear weapon, but... Yeah, that's just pure fiction. That can't happen. <laughs> it's a different world, folks. Yeah. So if we said, let's do a 20-year anniversary remake of The Peacemaker, let's see where the Clooney and Kidman characters end up. <laughs> Peacemaker let's 2. Let's, cre let's create some characters for them. <laughs> Peacemaker 2. Colonel Thomas DeVoe is now a retired general. And Julia Kelly is a doctor who works in an emergency room and somewhere at Arkham Asylum <laughs> <laughs> and together they will foil the plot for someone who wants to steal a chili recipe from a chili cook-off and take it into Europe I, across county lines and smoking the bandit uh, I was going to say where are we going with that? <laughs> I have no idea like, there's nowhere to go plot <laughs> there's nowhere to go I mean in hindsight it really comes down to Spend more time at the beginning, not just, there's Dr. Julia Kelly swimming furiously and showing up at the White House with wet hair. Oh, isn't she crazy? No, actually have her, like, at home or in her normal daily work before the bomb is taken. Or don't start with the nuclear weapon being taken. Start with the characters first so that we have someone to follow when the nuclear weapon is taken. I mean, I go back to speed Speed started with the uh, the elevator bomb, mm -hmm. um, but when they showed the elevator bomb, what's the first thing they did? They showed the rapport between Keanu Reeves and Jeff Daniels' characters right away. Boom. They were the first guys to show up, and they had a little snappy thing back and forth, so we got to know Keanu's character. Then after that whole sequence and the whole thing with the bus started, 
you got to see Sandra Bullock's character running, trying to catch up with the bus, getting on. She has a rapport with the, with the driver, the people. And she yeah. Has, yeah, she has a rapport with the people, gets some little things out. She lost her driver's license, yada, yada, yada. And boom, you instantly know who these, te- he, who these two people are while the action was going on. Whereas in Peacemaker, you're in some nowhereville in Russia with people speaking Russian, subtitles, which is kiss of death for a movie in America. <laughs> And then you have this massive explosion and a nuclear weapon's taken. Then you have Swimming Kidman, who shows up out of breath to talk about it in the White House. And then you show Clooney at some, uh, like, a uh, conference or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) He doesn't like this movie either. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But he's talking at some conference about how he... You misappropriated funds or something like that, and we're supposed to think, "Oh, look, it's Smarmy Charmin Clooney talking about how he's Smarmy Charmin Thomas DeVoe who did stuff." In the he past. does a lot of smirking in this movie, yes, but it doesn't do anything to say who his character is outside of well, no. he's Smarmy Charmin <laughs> Q- Clooney, and it's Swimming Kidman. So that's all we got. <laughs> we got Smarmy Charmin and Swimming. That's there is our characterization, and that is as far as it goes. And it really is pointless. Is, does it feel like this was... I, I'm thinking of some of the other movies of the time period. Did Do you feel like there was kind of a run of this type of filmmaking, of this type of poor setup with characters and very bland action movies in that era? Or... I mean, we were kind of beyond the big testosterone Schwarzenegger-Stallone era with the action franchises and everything like that. There wasn't really a... Other than arguably the Bond movies of the 90s, there wasn't really a consistent action uh, franchise, was there? Uh, Well, I mean, Lethal Weapon had four in 1998... Yeah, but it it had seen its best days in the yeah days in early nineties. Yeah, like you said, Die Hard was done in ninety five, at least for that first round. Uh huh. Go back to our previous episodes in our archive to find out what we think about round two of Die Hard. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's a good point. This movie really seems like it it would fit in well in nineteen eighty six, not mm-hmm. not in nineteen ninety seven. And there's a thing to be said for pro and there's. There's obviously exceptions to every rule. But if you go 1995 to about 2002, somewhere in that run of storytelling between movies and TV, there was that shift from the 80s where it's just, there's Stallone, there's Schwarzenegger, they are who they are, action. And we're going to tell you that they were these people, but you you don't care. It's action. That's kind of what this movie fits into, but then you have the backside of that where you start getting into more deep character bases. And I think that goes for any movie in the early 2000s, even if it's cheap and cheesy or just action-based, you still see a concerted effort, no matter how lame the movie could be of the the makers the writers the directors still trying to force in some sort of characterization for their people i mean i go to a movie like uh what was it swat which was Mm. uh colin farrell and samuel jackson and michelle rodriguez i saw that once when i was working out at the gym it's the only time i ever saw it and it's like "Eh, it's got some fun action beats in it but there are certain sequences where they pull people aside and you can it's really ham-handed and kind of jammed in there. But, it, well, this guy had this background, and this guy had to go through this problem and whatnot. It was really rough, and it didn't work very well, but at least they tried. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one seems like, yeah, it floats on the 80s mentality of, no, it's just an action scene, and here's two look, good-looking people with guns. Go! It's almost like some of the old TV series from the, the <laughs> 80s. I mean, we're... Yeah, you didn't have a ton of characterization, but I mean, you don't even have like a fun supporting cast in this thing. No, not at all. I mean, Armin Mueller-Stahl was in this movie as the European contact that he meets up with and gives the his daughter stuff, and he he kind of has a little bit of a 
uh, a charming sense to it. And there's there's a little bit of repartee, and that's what I mean. I think but the the scenes with uh, Armin Mueller, Stahl, Clooney, and Kidman, I think Clooney sat down with Mimi Leader and said, hey, we're going to have a rapport with this guy. Like, I've known him for years. So let's just do that. And, it's, and I think that really kind of forced out the only moments of levity in this whole movie where you thought, oh, there's something there. Maybe. And then they kill Armin Mueller-Stahl and go on to some random Hans Zimmer pumped <laughs> car chase for some reason. And, it's been about five minutes since we've had some action. <laughs> yeah, and that's and the, the DeVoe character. I mean, you talk about the car chase, his, his repartee with Armin Mueller-Stahl, and you're thinking, he's this... Yeah, he's a military guy who can shoot a gun, and he's but he's got this kind of laconic. He does what it has to get done, and he'll he'll subvert authority. But then at the end of the car chase scene, they throw in this like, no, but he's super badass, and he gets really pissed off and goes and shoots these guys in the head unceremoniously and walks off pissed off. And you're like, well, where did that come from? Why, why did you just do that? <laughs> And then it never comes back again. It, it, uh, no. Yeah, that's an odd it's moment like he, now that you're talking about it. It's like he's really pissed that his friend got killed, and so he's going to kill him. Okay, well, that means this guy's temper might get in the way when they're go- running through Manhattan, and he starts shooting people. Nope, never comes back. He just They just become bland action chase scenes. <laughs> well, that was a thing. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> got that one out of my system. <laughs> Brick just killed a guy. <laughs> Where did Clooney get a handgun? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, this movie I think is probably doesn't deserve as much as we've talked about it, frankly. Well, it, it, probably not, but it, it it's just interesting because it is literally one of the few movies I can think of where you watch it and you're just going it's not even like you can just pick out one or two things that could be changed that could like save it. It's just this constant flatline all the way through somehow. But I will and say it, it's just interesting on that level because I really can't at the from the top of my head here. I really just can't think of a movie that I feel this way about. But I will say that the concept could work. Oh, I think the concept could work fine. The missing nuke concept could work if we had characters we gave two shits about and if we cared enough to know why they would be the ones that were following in this chase for a missing nuke. I mean, I mentioned, yeah, I mentioned Bond. How many missing nuke stories have we had in Bond? Yeah, that always gets a little cartoony, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you want to keep it grounded in reality, fine. Then ground the damn thing in reality and show us real people. Yeah, Clooney's character would be somebody who'd be chasing, but Nicole Kidman would would just not be there. She would be advising. There's no reason except, well, she's a really strong swimmer. So she can, <laughs> she should be out there. In, in case these things are underwater and you need a human who can move like a dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> We've obviously set up that she can swim. That's Chekhov's gun on the wall. She's swimming in the first act, so she's got it's got to come in at the end. She's got to be swimming down to the nuclear weapon. Nope. Yeah, it comes in at the end. She's swimming, swimming at the end of the movie. <laughs> Either that or put some sort of chemistry on this romantic-wise to say that these two... Are going to get no. There's just n- nothing there. Yeah, some personal stakes. Some, you know, like I said, friends or family in danger. Heck, at the beginning of the movie, they just go and blow up a bunch of people in Russia. I mean, we never see any emotional aftermath from that. It's just like eh, there's a bunch of dead people. Okay. Yeah, have the Let's guy get to work. Have the guy he goes to meet with in Europe have his daughter die in the train or something. Yeah, something. Some sort of emotional connection. There's some grieving families on the news or something from these soldiers who got killed. Something. Because it's almost like they said, okay, well, we don't want to get schmaltzy and have the whole world be this small that everyone's connected. Okay, fine. Well, then be cold and serious and real. 
But then they don't. Then they try to bring in human drama to it, and they don't know what the hell they're doing with. Or not. Uh, let me let me take that back because it's a competently made movie. I can't say they don't know what they're doing, but yeah, they, I mean, didn't, they, they didn't know what to choose as far as which direction to go. And I think no, I agree with that. Yeah. They got into the editing room. They had a Ben Burt, George Lucas moment of, oh, <laughs> I don't know what we have here, but it's something apparently. <laughs> and, oh, let's put a scene together of Clooney and Kidman at the end saying they might go out for some reason. Now, I'm never personally going to take the time to do this, but it would be interesting to see if this is one of those movies where it's like if somebody did their own, like, recut, it's like, <laughs> could you get a better movie? If you resequence some of what already exists, could you get a better movie? I think if you cut out some of the filler and just made it nothing but a straight-ahead, you know, this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens and there's no pauses or filler for attempted character moments. I think you could recut it because the characters are non-existent anyways. Mm -hmm. So you take that out and you just simply follow the action plot. You might be able to make something halfway decent. Mm. That'd be an interesting exercise. So if anybody out there is into <laughs> film editing and wants to take a stab at it. <laughs> Let's see if the the uh, the uh, Soderbergh blog where he does such classics as like a Psycho remix and stuff as an experiment. Well, maybe he should do a Peacemaker remix. There, there we go. It's like, well, it's the remix nobody asked for. <laughs> but I think, but, but here it is. <laughs> but I think in hindsight, you could make this a decent movie with the concept and just, I mean, like Speed or like uh, The Dark Knight or something where. You're never able to, quote-unquote, catch your breath as an audience. The, those movies where, all right, we are starting at 11 and we're never dialing it back. Even when we think we're dialing it back to have a sweet romantic scene or whatever it is, there's always a tension that is underlying that scene. There's never a break. And then just go. So stolen nuke, just go. There's no moments of, oh, well... I grew up in this town, and this is what happened to me. And I went to college with this person <laughs> who built a nuclear bomb. And, no, you know, that would be they're sitting in a cafe talking about something. And meanwhile, outside, there's guys running at the window like grocer and gross point blank with the guns ready to shoot or something. <laughs> Go back to our last episode. So, I don't know. Personally, this movie is lost to history, and it's a... Fun side note as far as the pre-Superstar Clooney and the first DreamWorks movie ever. But outside of that, there is nothing left to it. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, with the outside chance, though, that Mimi Leader might is on that little short list of uh, who Warner Brothers is trying to get to direct a uh, Wonder Woman movie because they're trying to get a female director for it. Mm. Outside of that, yeah, no, it's... Well, I know history. she's okay. So we mentioned Deep Impact. We mentioned this, uh, and obviously she's continued to work with like television and everything. Has she had another go at a big blockbuster picture kind of thing like Wonder Woman would be? Well, that's an excellent question. And if we look it up, we find out. Uh, yeah, she's doing a lot of TV, like she started doing. ER and all the kind of stuff. Um, let's see. Producer, director. Lots and lots and lots of TV. The West Wing. The last movie she did was Pay It Forward. The awkward Helen Hunt, Haley Joel Osment, <laughs> Kevin Spacey movie. So it looks like she had a little bit of a chance there in the late 90s to be hey, you're doing really well with ER for us on TV, So, and Spielberg was a producer there. Come on in and direct. So Peacemaker, Deep Impact, Pay It Forward, and then they decided, huh, uh, want to go back to TV? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a little surprised, actually, then, given that, that uh, she would be on the short list. I don't know if it's a short list. It's a rumor list. So okay, well, rumor list. For whatever that is. She's directing episodes of The Leftovers, which is a big HBO show now. But right. I think she should just remain where she was in TV. That's where she got a career. 
Seems to be the strong, strong suit. The three movies did not do her any favors. Uh, So, yeah, I think that's enough. She can can leave it alone. We we know both uh, main actors went on to get Oscars after this, so it didn't kill any careers. Uh, It might have killed Mimi Leader's career as far as a feature director, but... um, yeah, it, 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 I think that's the the thing we can say about it. There were no characters, and it made such little impression on people that it just didn't even destroy careers. These guys went on and were fine. So it just, <laughs> it, just nothing happened. <laughs> it was like walking. It's like walking through fog in the morning. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's gone and it's over. It's not like Batman and Robin where you're walking no, through a swamp no, at no. night. It's walking yeah. through fog in the morning. <laughs> yeah, Clooney, Clooney took uh, much more of a black eye from that movie than he did from this one. I, I wholeheartedly agree on that. So what this really could have been is that this was the fifth Batman movie where they brought Chase Meridian back. Mm. And this, was the, <laughs> this was the fifth. This was supposed to be the fifth Batman movie. Okay, so if you're doing that recut, also just animate in some uh, Batman costume props over them when they're <laughs> running around. <laughs> and and let's see what that does. And then bring in Jack Nicholson as the Joker, and he's the one with the nuclear bomb that they're chasing. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I got a bomb! Gonna, yeah, it's going to be a big cartoony bomb. <laughs> <laughs> some days you just can't stop a guy with a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> the peacemaker is supposed to be Batman triumphant. <laughs> oh, that would make it more interesting. <laughs> brought back your favorite character of all those Batman movies, Dr. Chase Meridian. <laughs> uh, I think having more fun talking about Chase Meridian means that this movie is uh, lost to history and should go away. Okay, well then, on that note, let's wrap it up. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. Episodes can be downloaded on iTunes or at EnceladusLiterary.com. He's an asshole. Save your trip. <sighs> Thanks. I'll set up for the official version. Okay, officially, he's an asshole. He'll do anything for money, which is the good news because it makes him fairly predictable. Really? I'd say he's been anything but predictable. Opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect those of Enceladus Literary. Okay, but ah!